0: So we're in Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to finish off chapter 4. I'll pray and we'll get stuck into it. Father, thank you for your grace, and Lord, the way that you're calling Moses. And even though Moses is scared, and um, he's a man of, um, at the moment, little faith, he just needs someone to do the talking for him, and he's struggling. Lord, you're still so patient and so kind with him, and eventually Moses will be the one doing the talking. But Lord, you just hold his hand and you lead him to that place and you strengthen him and you guide him and you encourage him and you persevere with his weaknesses, Lord. And I thank you that you persevere with our weaknesses and that you take us by the hand and you lead us and you guide us and you strengthen us and you see what you want us to be, who you want us to be, what you want us to do. And we can't imagine doing it, but as you reveal it to us, you you give us the grace and the power to do it. So help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start reading at verse 18 in uh, Exodus chapter 4. Last week we looked at the five excuses that Moses used to try and get out of God's calling for his life. And this week we see Moses leaving to go to Egypt and there's a couple of interesting things that happen. Verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro his father-in-law and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if he refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zephora took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet, and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people, so the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. So do you remember the three signs? Were you paying attention? Yep, the snake, the rod turning of the snake, then there was... Yep, the, the hand turning leprous when he goes into his chest or his bosom and then coming out and then going back in and, and being, being clean. And the last one, water turning into blood, judgment. So starting at verse 20, Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the right of God in his hand. So it's like a, a summary verse there. So it's telling us what Moses is about to do. Now we get the details of how it works out. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, regarding God hardening Pharaoh's heart, a lot of people have questions about this. I found a a good explanation, it's very simple, uh, from David Guzik, who says, God also knew he would harden Pharaoh's heart. And that it would take the death of the firstborn before Pharaoh would agree to release the children of Israel. Sometimes it says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, example Exodus four twenty one, just read it. Sometimes it say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, Exodus eight fifteen. And sometimes it simply says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened without saying who did it. And that's an example of that is Exodus chapter seven verse thirteen. So who really hardened Pharaoh's heart? We might say that it was both God and Pharaoh, but whenever God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he never did it against Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh never said, Oh, I want to do what is right, and I want to bless these people of Israel. And God answered, No, for I will harden your heart against them. When God hardened, he allowed Pharaoh's heart to do what Pharaoh wanted to do. God gave Pharaoh over to his sin. Now if you want an um, explanation of being given over to your sin, um, you can write this down, I won't read it this morning, it's too long. And it kind of distracts from where we're going. It's Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. So you can read that at home and it's a really good explanation of uh, God giving us over to our sin. Okay, And that's what I think is basically happening here. Although the Lord is sending Moses to demand that Pharaoh let his people go, he makes it clear to Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart, knowing the confrontation would eventually prove to the entire Egyptian culture that he alone is a true living God. Now, going back to the hardening, it's a dangerous thing to harden your heart against God because if you persist in hardening your heart, God will eventually agree with you. The Bible says all manner of sin but one is forgiven all men, referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, when a man hardens his heart against the work of the Spirit, drawing him to God. So I want to apply this to us now, first of all to the world, to unbelievers, and then to us as Christians. So in Matthew twelve thirty one, if you'd like to look up that one, that verse, we'll look up a few verses here, and... Uh, this whole hardening thing is made clear as we read some of these verses. And the unforgivable sin, it's a good time to talk about that as well. It's all linked. So Matthew twelve thirty one says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit, Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Now, in Genesis six three, it says that God's Spirit won't always strive with us. He won't always keep fighting with us. If we keep saying, I'm a good person, I don't need Jesus, I won't believe who he is, who he claimed to be. I absolutely refuse to submit to him, and God will say, have it your way, I'll no longer speak to you. And at that point, a decision to be saved is impossible. And you go, "Well, that's not in the Bible. Well, actually it is. Look up John chapter 12, verse 36 to 41. John chapter 12, verse 36 to 41. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they have hard hearts. There's been many miracles done, there's many signs and wonders. But they are refusing to believe. So here's a story here in John chapter 12, verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So that's a choice. They made the choice not to believe in in God, in Jesus, in the miracles, in who Jesus was saying that he was, the Messiah. Verse 38, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And verse 39, this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible for me. Therefore they could not believe. Talking about the Pharisees, they in verse 37, they did not believe. In him, after all those signs, their hearts became harder and harder and harder. And then God hardened their hearts. Jesus says, therefore they, or the Holy Spirit through John said, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. So these verses from Isaiah are from the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. God is telling Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. It's a bit like Jeremiah. You're not going to have any converts. You're not going to have any success. But you're going to be faithful to tell people about me anyway. Now, if we go to the end of Isaiah, so if you could look up Isaiah chapter 65, we're going to Look at God's heart and the great lengths that God goes to to reach out to the children of Israel. This is not something that happens quickly. God goes to great lengths. And we're going to read these verses in Isaiah 65 and and go, wow, you know, God has put up with so much from them, the nation of Israel, before he finally says, enough is enough. So, Isaiah 65, verse 2. I have stretched out my hands all day long, to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts are people who provoke me to anger continually to my face who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels who say keep to yourself do not come near me for I am holier than you. Now skip over to chapter 30 in Isaiah, same book, chapter 30. And, and we're going to read verse 9 to 13. So Isaiah 39 to 13. It says, "...that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, or the prophets, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things." Speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. So that's talking there about the constant rebellion of the children of Israel. So we've seen the rebellion of the Pharisees, we've seen the rebellion of Pharaoh, we've seen here the the rebellion of the children of Israel. And God is saying, this sin shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, like a bulge in a high wall. One day, there's no more chances. It's over. The breaking will come suddenly in an instant. So the summary, we need to understand that God only hardened their hearts after they repeatedly refused to submit to God. So the Israelites, the Pharisees, and Pharaoh. Three examples here. Okay. Last week we talked about something similar and we said that sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is that God gives us what we ask for. We want, as the Israelites said, or the, the, the world says we don't want God, would they prayer out of the schools, and God says, fine. You can have it that way. And the nation becomes godless, and we wonder why there's so many shootings, and so much destruction, and crime, and murder. You don't have to be really clever to figure out what's going on. God is giving us what we've asked for. A world, a country without Him. I'd like you to turn to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Here we see God's heart. Okay, some people might be thinking, well, God's mean and you know he gets offended and he, he won't give you another chance. But this is God's heart. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So just like Isaiah said, he's been stretching his arms out all day long. Well, here he says That he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the key here is we need to understand that even God's patience has limits. So it's very it's dangerous to keep pushing those things. This is why the Bible says so clearly in Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So if you are not saved today, then today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off, because there may not be another chance. Firstly, you might die. You might be in a car accident, you might die of a heart attack. Secondly, your heart may become hardened beyond the point of return. You may have just rejected the conviction of the Holy Spirit one time too many. So today, what is actually going on when someone rejects God's invitation for salvation? How are we blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What people talk about as the unforgivable sin. If you could turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16, verse 7. So it's John chapter 16, verse 7. I'm going to read through to verse 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. That's the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin... Because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the key part here is, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. That's singular. One thing. What is that sin? Of sin, because they do not believe in me, verse 9. Okay, That's the sin. They do not believe. They're refusing the conviction or the um, prompting of the Holy Spirit. If you can turn in your Bibles, same author but different book. First uh, John chapter five. A bit of a another a, a further explanation of what's going on. Why is this such a serious thing? What are they rejecting? So, First John chapter five verse nine says, "If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which He has testified of His Son." He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar. I'll just repeat that phrase. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has a Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So when we don't accept that, We're calling God a liar. Now, go back to chapter 1 in 1 John, a couple of pages back maybe. Here's another way that we can um, reject the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's all the same thing. It's all about this sin of unbelief. Verse 8, 1 John chapter 1 verse 8, But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Sorry, verse 10, the key verse here. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So when the Holy Spirit convicts us or convicts the the non-believer, the unbeliever, There's two ways they can respond. First, they can believe God when he reveals to them that they are sinners and that Jesus is the saviour of the world and they can receive forgiveness. Or the unbeliever can choose not to believe that they are sinners, people who have broken God's holy and perfect law, and so continued to believe that they are good people and that their own goodness and their own righteousness was enough to get them into heaven and be accepted by God. And that's why it's so important to use the Ten Commandments when witnessing. So the unforgivable sin is basically a hardening of your heart to the point where you've resisted the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit says that's enough. Okay, And you cannot be saved because you cannot believe. And again, the Pharisees... They would not believe, then they could not believe. So, verse 22, back in Exodus chapter 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. It's interesting that this is so early on, We, you know, before I started studying Exodus, it was like, oh, you know, the 10th the plague was the, the killing of the firstborn, but here God tells Moses that it's going to happen right at the very start. So Israel is, as a picture, as a type, is God's firstborn. And what God is going to do is going to be an exchange of Israel, his firstborn, for Egypt's firstborn. Pharaoh was trying to destroy God's firstborn, so God would destroy the firstborn of Pharaoh's kingdom, all his firstborn. A, a fitting judgment. Uh, verse 24, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. So this is Moses. Okay, Moses, God taps him on the shoulder, uh, Moses, you're going to lead up to three million people out of the land of Egypt. You're going to be the deliverer. You're going to be my prophet. You're going to have all these signs. And God stops him and sought to kill him. Whoa, what's going on here? Well, if you read the um, the rest of those verses, Moses hadn't circumcised his son, Gershom. So, Moses couldn't pronounce judgment on Pharaoh's house while his own house was in error. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And 1 Timothy three. Four to five says, talking about deacons and elders, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So basically, we have the situation where Moses had not taken care of his own house; he had not been the spiritual leader in his own house. Gudzik says. There is often a point of confrontation in the life of the leader where God demands that they lay aside some area of compromise and will not allow them to progress further until they do. So an application of this is if there's a sin in the life of somebody. Sometimes God will overlook um, our failings and will still allow us to to do what he wants us to do. But there comes a point where If you want to be the person that God wants you to be, if you want to be in that position that God wants you to be in and you've got this area of compromise, of sin, then you need to get rid of that and God will deal with you. God will stop you from being in that position somehow, some way. So to serve God we must be holy because God is holy. And if we persist in our sin then we may be disqualified from ministry. Now, in Genesis 17:11 God instituted circumcision as an outward sign of an inward belief and it's the same thing as water baptism in the New Testament so it has the same meaning Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 and 12 in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So in these two verses, it links circumcision with baptism and they basically have the same meaning. It's a cutting off of the flesh. When we baptize, we go under, the old life is dead, we rise, a new person. Circumcision, the old life is cut off and we're a new person. So The circumcision was given to the Jewish nation as a mark of Differentiation to make them different from every other culture that was around them. Again, it symbolized the cutting off of the flesh, the destruction of the old life, and the living of the new, of being holy before God. It was an outward sign of what should have been an inward change. Now it was for Abraham. Abraham was a changed man. But for many of the other Israelites, just going through the ritual, it didn't change their heart, obviously. You can be baptized and it doesn't make you a Christian. The Bible makes it clear that in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, that every believer should be water-baptized as a symbol of what God has done in their hearts. So basically, you're saved first, and then you get baptized as an outward sign, a public declaration of your new life. Yet, despite knowing this, despite knowing that God instituted circumcision back in Genesis chapter 17, Moses never circumcised his son. Why not? Well, I'm gonna give you three possible reasons. Maybe he was so busy watching sheep that he forgot about the spiritual needs of his family. You know how we put our jobs ahead and our efforts and our time, our resources into things that we want to do? And we can justify that? Well, I have to make you know I have to provide food and the house for my family, but not to the point where you neglect the spiritual well-being of your own family. Or Maybe you're caught off in ministry. But you know what? God is basically tapping Moses on the shoulder again. And hey, look, you're going to minister to three million people. But the most important ministry for you is your own family. You must minister to your own family first. And there's no... Ministry that you will ever be engaged in that is more important, more fulfilling, more satisfying, more gratifying or thrilling than discipling your own children. So God tapping on the shoulder like he did to Moses and saying, hey, three million people will listen to you. That's incomparable to seeing your own son or daughter discipled and trained. That's your first priority. And if you think your family isn't a big enough ministry for a man or of your skills and abilities or if you're a mother a woman, then consider this. Jesus, the perfect man, the ultimate minister, the ultimate servant, the ultimate discipler, only chose 12 disciples, a small number of people that he can invest his life in. And so two or three or four kids is more than enough for us to disciple. We get their kids as like a blank piece of paper. When a person comes to a pastor for counseling, they're already messed up. And the pastor has to kind of unfix the mess or try to, you know, if they listen to what God is saying in their hearts. But as parents, we get our kids from the word go as a blank piece of paper and we get to nourish them and to mold them and to raise them in the ways of the Lord. And it's an incredible opportunity. So another reason is we're going to get onto to now. We'll read verse 25 and 26 first. So Exodus 4.25, Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So here's God. He's got Moses, restrained him somehow, and he's about to kill him. And Zipporah realizes that God's about to kill Moses because he hasn't circumcised his son. And so she has to do it. She didn't want to do this. She was against this idea. She didn't want her son to be circumcised. It wasn't part of her culture, her, her religion. But you know what? Maybe Moses didn't circumcise his son because of pressure from his wife, from his family. I mean, Jethro was a priest. It doesn't say priest of what. And um, it doesn't tell us what he's a priest of. Probably a a pagan priest. So his capitulation, his neglect, nearly cost him his life. Joshua said in Joshua 24.15, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It doesn't say, as for me and my house, when I get Mrs. Joshua's permission, we will serve the Lord. It just says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We need to take a similar stand. Moses didn't take this stand. And God's basically saying to Moses, Moses, your life will be basically meaningless if you continue to neglect your primary ministry, which is your family. And seeing the severity of the situation, Zipporah did something she wouldn't have had to do if Moses was the leader he should have been, the spiritual leader in the family. His life was spared and his wife walked away bitter. Now I can think of times in my life where Marissa's been frustrated, maybe not bitter, possibly bitter, but sometimes often frustrated when I haven't stepped up to the plate and I haven't been the husband that I should have been. So what does the Bible say? Well, Hebrews 4.12, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, it is a word that deals with the flesh. We need to get the word in there. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. So get the word in your heart and share it with your children constantly. When you're driving in the car, working together in the yard, riding a horse together, my example, playing together at the beach, you have opportunity to pour the word into your children. David said, this how shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to the word? So Satan would whisper in her ears, "Oh, it's too late to tend the flesh of your sons and daughters, your grandchildren, your family." No, it's never too late. As poor the one who saved the life of her husband, from this point on, take the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and apply it regularly, consistently in your family. Carve out time for family devotions, family prayer, and family discussion. But my kid's not into it, you say. That's irrelevant. It's a matter of you saying, we take time to eat together, we take time to holiday together, and we take time to honor the Lord together. I hope you're into it, but even if you're not, it's still going to happen because God said, I am to teach my family constantly. But my teenage son is rebellious, you say. Ah, but God searched throughout all eternity and said, you're the one who can handle him. God wouldn't have given us our kids if we're not able to raise them. So no one who has kids, grandchildren, nephews or nieces ever need long or desire for a bigger ministry or more opportunity. If we never do a miracle, if we never have a big evangelistic ministry, it doesn't matter because if you have family devotions, this pastor will go to heaven a happy man because the action within the church under your roof okay, is awesome. It's the congregation that God has given you. Every man is a pastor of his own home. Do not neglect that ministry. I just want to point out here that when the men don't live up to what God has asked them to do, to be the leader, the spiritual leader, then the woman has to rise up to do that. And that makes it very hard on them. It's not their job to do that. And Zipporah, it says that she was bitter. So, you know, men, we need to step up to the plate and and make sure that reading the word to our wives, make sure we're praying with our wives, make sure we're discipling our, our kids, reading the word to them, praying with them, encouraging them to have personal devotions because that's our primary ministry. It's much more important than ministering to the masses. And from my personal experience, when we are working together well as a family and I'm doing my job as a spiritual leader in my home, reading the Bible to the kids each morning and and discussing it with them and encouraging them in personal devotions, it's awesome. The joy is fantastic and we might have little hiccups here and there, you know, little marital disputes (laughs) as they happen every now and again, but you know what? There's a foundation there which is strong. Marissa says a family who prays together stays together. And we still go through the same hard times, but we... We don't crash and burn. You know, we just, whoops, hard time. Okay, let's get back on track. And and we got that strength there. And the kids, they respond so well. They get their word in their hearts and you can see the change in their lives. So it's just fantastic. Don't miss an opportunity. All right, verse 27. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So, Again another fulfilled promise. God told Moses that he would send Aaron to him. And this is another thing of as in Exodus chapter four verse fourteen. God's providence. God working one person, God working another person, brings them together, and things happen. But remember that it wasn't God's will initially for Aaron to be Moses' spokesman. Maya says, Aaron who came to meet Moses could speak well, but he was a weak man whose alliance with Moses caused his nobler, younger brother much anxiety and pain. So God gave Moses what he wanted, but Moses found out later it wasn't the best thing. Verse 28, So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him, and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people, so the people believed, just as God said in Exodus 3.18. He said the people would listen to him. I can imagine Moses being quite discouraged at this point, because he'd tried before and failed. And so he doesn't really want to get burnt again, you know, once burnt, twice shy, you've heard that phrase? I can understand Moses's, um reluctance to have another go at being the deliverer of these people, because he'd been betrayed by his own people already. And he doesn't really want to do it again. He doesn't want to experience that betrayal again. But that was when he was doing it his own way, in his own time, in his own strength. Now it's in God's way, and in God's strength, and in God's time. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped That's a beautiful verse there for me. They bowed their heads and worshipped. Years before when Moses offered himself as a deliverer to Israel, they rejected him. Now the time is right. Now it's in God's will, in God's time, and God's destiny for Moses' life will be fulfilled. So what does worship mean? It means that we're submitted to God, depending on God, thankful to God, and trusting in God. That's worship. So, the people heard how the Lord had visited them, that He knew and understood their affliction. their affliction didn't change straight away, but they continued to worship God. We too have been visited by the Lord, for when the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John one fourteen God communicated everything He ever wanted to say to us perfectly in the person of His Son, and it's Hebrews chapter one, verses one, and two and To me, this is a good illustration of what happens when someone is saved. Egypt is a picture of the world, the house of bondage, the iron furnace. There's no rest, no lasting joy or satisfaction, only emptiness and pain and unending slavery and bondage to sin. And then Christ comes, looks upon our affliction and promises to deliver us. And what should our response be? To bow our heads and worship because of our gratitude to God for his loving kindness and grace toward us. Now as Christians sometimes we can revert to living by the flesh, by our own strength and fail to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, when we finally realize that we're burning out, running down, growing tired, and, and we're afflicted, we're in bondage to sin again, then we can also respond again in the same way. We can repent, bow our heads and worship, and once again depend upon God's strength and not our own. I've got a song I'd like to play for you. and It's basically Matthew eleven twenty eight 28-30. And it's a really good way of just finishing off because these people, these Israelites were heavy laden, they were laboring, and God came along and he gave them rest. Father, I just pray that we can um, remember what we were saved from. Lord, we were saved from the bondage of the world, the bondage of sin, the power of sin, and also the penalty of sin. Help us to, to truly bow our heads and bow our hearts and worship you. And Lord, I just really admire these people of Israel who are suffering so badly for so long when they hear the promise of deliverance, of being saved from the land of Egypt, Lord, that they to bow their heads and worship. They trust you. They're grateful. And help us to never forget what you saved us from. Help us not take it for granted. In Jesus' name, amen.